1: Whether you are a seasoned wrong thinker or just wrong think curious, I'm glad you're part of the audience today. I'm going to make it worth your while too. Our program is brought to you by Monticello College.org, HSLMO.com, and Pure-Light.com. These are our sponsors and I would encourage you to check them out. There are links provided in the show notes, which you'll find at the Brian Hyde Show.com. Also find a lot of great reading there. So among the things we will talk about in this hour... We're going to talk about, uh, about mask-burning parties. I know, I've seen a few videos of these, and, and look, I agree with the sentiment. I'm not so sure I would attend one and go burn a mask just to show freedom, you know. But uh, I'm not going to tell you that's a bad idea, you know, if that's, if that's the way you lean. But I do have a question for you pertaining to this, and that is, have you stopped masking at every opportunity? I guess this is as good a place as any to start, so we'll just dive in here. Um, I'm not suggesting there's just one right answer to that, but um, I had the opportunity because um, I guess I guess this isn't a secret. Now I can go ahead and just uh, just put this out there. My family and I are in the process of relocating to southern Idaho. And as you might guess, uh, moving is really never that much fun. It's a ton of work. There are complications. There are challenges. There There's just a ton of work involved. One of the toughest things is trying to decide what do we need, what don't we need. It's really stressful. I mean, I don't want to sound like a victim, but I've never felt more owned by my stuff than I feel right now. So I'm trying to divest myself of as much of it as possible. But one of the things that I have noticed as we have traveled back and forth between uh, where we currently live and southern Idaho is that the, the higher the population center, the more people there are in a given geographic area, the more likely I am to encounter people who are still firmly in the camp of wearing masks when in public. Case in point, I was at the grocery store yesterday and, you know, it's I, I'm not looking down on these folks. So please don't think I'm calling sheep sheeple wearing their mask. I, look, I, I choose not to wear one, but that's just because I, whatever risks, you know, it, it may help uh, to mitigate. I don't feel that I'm at that big of a risk. So it's it's just interesting how this has become habit and and almost a a crutch in some ways for some people to where they just they don't feel right going out in public. It's it's like it would be impolite like be like walking around in public without pants on. I I don't know that you know people would be comfortable with this. You don't get the dirty looks that you did, you know, for a long time, but it's it's astonishing how again in the high population centers, the the masking is still a pretty significant part of the of the population. I mean, I'm guessing 60%, maybe more. Now, I contrast this with southern Idaho, and I spent a couple of days up there this last weekend. Um, I can only think of one person I saw wearing a mask, at least one that stood out. You know, it's, it's possible I missed others, but there was a, a lady, a senior citizen by the looks of it, who came into a restaurant where my family and I had stopped to grab some lunch, and she was wearing a mask. But everywhere else we went, it was just unmasked faces. And it's not like, yeah, we were just, you know, in this little rural, you know, mud lake area where there's only a handful of people. No, we were, we were in a fairly populous uh, area of south central Idaho. But it's just clear that the, much of the public is over the whole mask wearing thing. When I saw Annie Holmquist's article yesterday on, uh, on intellectualtakeout.org, it got me thinking. The article's titled, Time to Plan Mask-Burning Parties. And I'm actually thinking if, if someone were to invite me to one, I might go. Probably more for the company than for the sake of burning my mask, but uh, here's what Annie's take is. She says, as COVID restrictions begin to fall, there seems to be a new problem emerging, namely, Americans' inability to ditch the masks. Masks, it seems, have become a type of security blanket for many, reporter Karen Brouillard claims in a recent Washington Post article. She explains how David Diaz, a vaccinated 29-year-old, struggles to go for a run outside without a mask, worried not so much about the virus anymore, but rather what others will think of him. Diaz is quoted as asking by the Washington Post, at what point are you doing more harm than good and letting fear or something rule your life? Now, Annie says, that seems like an excellent question to me, one that we should have asked months months ago. We should certainly ask it now. Why are we in such bondage to fear? Now, there are many answers to that question, but she says Robert Nisbet gives a very good, encompassing answer in his book, The Quest for Community, when he notes that fear results when we abolish the basic supports of society from our life. Here's how he puts it. The family, religious association, and local community, these, the conservatives insisted, cannot be regarded as the external products of man's thought and behavior. They are essentially prior to the individual and are the indispensable re- supports of, of uh, belief and conduct. Release man from the contexts of community and you get not freedom and rights, but intolerable aloneness and subjection to demonic fears and passions. End quote. That last line, release man from the context of community and you get not freedom and rights, but intolerable aloneness and subjection to demonic fears and passions. Just think about that in the context of mask wearing, where everyone is hidden away behind that mask and where they are subjected to fears, where where passions run crazy. How many times have you seen videos of people freaking out either for or against masks? Annie Holmquist continues, Society has succeeded at breaking apart the family in recent decades and using divorce, cohabitation, and other tactics to destroy the traditional unit of father, mother, and children. But the other two areas Nisbet mentions, religious associations and local communities, went into hyper-decline with the COVID restrictions many states put on their citizens, including the closure of churches and prevention of social gatherings. When one removes these supports, as Nisbet explains... Solitude results, which in turn brings about intense fear. But it's not just the isolation from personal contact that brings humans so much fear. As Nisbet goes on to explain, removing the supports of church, family, and community causes further fissures in individuals by separating them from their heritage. Society, she says, Burke wrote in a celebrated line, is a, actually, I guess, she, she sorry, she's quoting um." She's quoting Nisbet here. Society, Burke wrote in a celebrated line, is a partnership of the dead, the living, and the unborn. Mutilate the roots of society and tradition, and the result must inevitably be the isolation of a generation from its heritage, the isolation of individuals from their fellow men, and the creation of the sprawling, faceless masses. End quote. Now, Annie Holmquist says in her home state of Minnesota, they recently announced that masks and other COVID restrictions will soon come to an end. But while the literal sprawling faceless masses may soon only be a memory, she asks where will we be able or will we be able to co- recover the confidence we lost through the destruction of these societal pillars? She answers it will be a challenge, but it is possible. The first thing to do is to get ourselves and others over the hump of getting out and being people again. It can be a struggle, but if one will venture out with others once or twice, especially without a mask, the fear of doing so will soon fade. So invite a friend for a walk, have extended family over for dinner, or host a neighborhood gathering in the backyard. Better yet, she says, why not have a mask-burning party? Bring people together for a bonfire, throw the masks into the pit, watch them blaze, throw on some wood, grab the marshmallows. But don't just make the event a fun, uproarious time celebrating the end of the pandemic. She says, use the time around the fire, not only to rekindle fellowship, but also Interest in our heritage through deep conversations on family, religion, and our nation's history and traditions. She says, by the way, here's one more suggestion. Don't burn all your masks. She says, when this is all over, I intend to save one. Tucking it away in my journal as a reminder of the loss of freedom and the pain of isolation. It's just one more way to remember to never give into that fear again. I don't know why this one struck me so hard, but when I when I read her article, I thought, this is exactly why I feel this, this incredible appreciation for what I saw there in Idaho. People were just back to to being people. There was, there was a stronger sense of community. There was a stronger sense of freedom, less of a sense of, Ugh, are you a good person or a bad person? Am I signaling my virtue vigorously enough or not? which is what it's kind of become for a lot of people. I mean, it's, you know, we try not to, but sometimes we just can't help ourselves. I like the idea, though. We need to get out. We need to practice being people again. But like she says, if you're going to have a mask-burning party, don't just make it about burning the masks, okay? You can't, you can't restore and you can't preserve what matters most just out of anger that uh, someone was trying to, you know, step on this. Talk about the stuff that matters. Talk about family, talk about religion, talk about history, talk about traditions. Done around a campfire, that's actually a pretty cool experience. If you haven't tried it in a while, maybe it's time to give it a shot.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Again, I want to thank
1: you for being part of this growing audience of wrong thinkers. There was a time I was very consumed with the numbers. How many people are listening at any given time? And I I get this a lot from other hosts uh, for whom I produce podcasts. You know, what are my numbers? How many people are listening? Is anybody actually getting this? And and the answer that I've come to here, and I don't want you to take this wrong. I, I don't want you to think I'm taking you for granted or otherwise minimizing you. But the number of people listening to this podcast or any other podcast really isn't that important. Here's why. What's important is people who are seeking truth, who are seeking reassurance, or just looking for a way to see the world that doesn't draw them into the red versus blue tug of war, this is a place where they can find it and i fully accept that uh, that's not a message that everybody is looking for in fact it's not a message that that everybody is ready for and it doesn't mean we're better than them because they're just not ready for it it's just you know we're we're all at our own stage of you know progression in 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 figuring out what the world really is like and and what our place is and what we can do in that world so i'm glad you're part of this audience i'm grateful to see the numbers ever so slowly growing but I'm quite confident that the people who make this a part of their daily routine are people who are serious about looking for the truth, even if it's painful sometimes, and people who are looking for something more than just a political fix and, and a, you know, a direction of, hey, here's who you should be mad at, and you know let's sick you on, on this person or on this group or that idea. At the end of the day, my goal is to make sure that uh, you're more sure about who you are and what you stand for than what you're against. I hope that makes sense. And even though I don't perfectly attain that every time I sit down behind the microphone, that is my goal. It's to bring information, to bring truth, and to bring light as I best understand it without bringing more anger or fear into the situation. All right. Having said that, have another COVID-related story to share with you. We've had some time to process what worked and what hasn't worked over the last year and change, you know, regarding how to respond to COVID-19. Saw an article here from John Tamney. This was uh, printed in uh, lawliberty.org. And it explains uh, the one lesson that really stands out clearly for people who've been paying attention over this last year. And the lesson is this. Restricting freedom didn't defeat COVID. Here's the case that John Tamney makes. He says, let's travel back in time to March of 2020, when the predictions of mass death related to the new coronavirus started to gain currency. One study conducted by Imperial College's Neil Ferguson indicated U.S. deaths alone would exceed two million. Now, that number is often used even by conservatives and libertarians as justification for the initial lockdowns. In fact, we knew so little is the excuse. With so many deaths expected, can anyone blame local, state, and national politicians for panicking? And the answer is a resounding yes. To see why, imagine if Ferguson had predicted 30 million American deaths. Imagine the fear among the American people then. Which is precisely the point. The more threatening a virus is presumed to be, the more superfluous government force is. Really, who needs to be told to be careful if a failure to take precautions could reasonably result in death? Death predictions aside, he says, the other justification brooded in March of 2020 was that brief lockdowns, I think two weeks was the number often thrown around, would flatten the hospitalization curve. Now, in this case, the taking of freedom allegedly made sense as a way of protecting hospitals from a massive inflow of sick patients that they wouldn't have been able to handle and that would have resulted in a public health catastrophe. John Tamney points out, though, such a view similarly vandalizes reason. Think about it. Who needs to be forced to avoid behavior that might result in hospitalization? Better yet, who needs to be forced to avoid behavior that might result in hospitalization at a time when doctors and hospitals would be so short-staffed as to not be able to take care of admitted patients? Translated for those who need it, the dire predictions made over a year ago about the corona horrors that awaited us don't justify the lockdowns. Rather, they should remind the mildly sentient among us of how cruel and pointless they were. He says the common sense that we are to varying degrees born with, along with our genetic predisposition to survive, dictates that a fear of hospitalization or death would have caused Americans to take virus avoidance precautions that would well have exceeded any rules foisted on them by politicians to which some will reply with something along the lines of, not everyone has common sense. In in truth, there are lots of dumb, low-information types out there who disregarded all the warnings. Lockdowns weren't necessary for the wise among us. Rather, they were essential precisely because there are so many who aren't wise. But he says, actually, such a response is the best argument of all against lockdowns. John Tamney says, indeed, it cannot be stressed enough that, quote, low-information... Types are the most crucial people of all during periods of uncertainty. Precisely because they'll be unaware of, misunderstand or reject the warnings of experts, their actions will produce essential information that the rule followers never could. In not doing what the allegedly wise among us will, low information citizens will, by their contrarian actions, Teach us what behavior is most associated with avoidance of sickness and death, and more important, what behavior is associated with it. Tamney says one-size-fits-all decrees from politicians don't enhance health outcomes as much as they blind us to the actions, or lack thereof, that would protect us the most, or not. Freedom on its own is a virtue, and it produces crucial information. Even though freedom is its own wondrous virtue, panicky politicians erased it in 2020 on the supposition that personal and economic desperation was the best solution for a spreading virus. But wait, some will say, how elitist to let some people act as guinea pigs for the rest of us. John Tamney says such a statement is naive. Heroin and cocaine are illegal, but people still use both. And thank goodness they do. How could we know what threatens us and what doesn't without the rebellious? Still, there's the question of elitism. The lockdowns were the cruelest form of elitism by far. The implication of the lockdowns was that those who had the temerity to have jobs that were destinations like restaurants and shops would have to lose them. The lockdowns destroyed tens of millions of destination jobs, destroyed or severely impaired millions of businesses, not to mention the hundreds of millions around the world who were rushed into starvation, poverty, or both as a consequence of nail-biting politicians in countries like the U.S. that chose to take a break from reality. Talk about elitist actions. The very idea of wrecking the economy as a virus mitigation strategy will go down in history as one of the most abjectly stupid policy responses the world has ever endured. That's the case because economic growth is easily the biggest enemy death and disease have ever known, while poverty is easily the biggest killer. Economic growth produces the resources necessary so that doctors and scientists can come up with answers to what needlessly sickens us or shortens our lives altogether. In the 19th century, a broken femur brought with it a one out of three chance of death, while those lucky enough to survive the break had only one option, amputation. A child born in the 19th century had as good a chance of dying as living. A broken hip was a death sentence. Cancer most certainly was. But most didn't die of cancer because tuberculosis and pneumonia got them first. So what happened? Why don't we get sick or die as easily as we used to? And the answer is economic growth. Business titans like Johns Hopkins and John D. Rockefeller created enormous wealth, only to direct a lot of it toward medical science. What used to kill us became yesterday's news. Now, John Tamney says, even though freedom is its own wondrous virtue, even though freedom produces essential information that protects us, and even though free people produce the resources without which diseases kill with sickening rapidity, panicky politicians erased it in 2020 on the supposition that personal and economic desperation was the best solution for a spreading virus. And he concludes that historians will marvel at the abject stupidity of the political class in 2020. I agree with what he's saying here. And I know it sounds harsh to some people, but um, I think that we're going to look back on this time and we're going to wonder, how could we have been so thoroughly duped? And all I can say is fear is a really powerful, manipulative tool. And when people are trying to make you afraid, they're trying to hack your brain. So beware. I got a link to this in the show notes at the show.com Check it out for yourself. We'll be back right
0: after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back.
1: By the way, if you haven't checked out the show notes at the Brian Hyde show.com please do. Yes, you'll find some musings from me. I, I probably should be posting more essays there. But um, every day that I do the show, I post links to various stories that shed light on what's going on around us. And, uh, you know, it's it's a great way to get better informed. There's even a, a page called Resources for Wrong Thinkers. And these are some of the different news aggregator sites and just different sites that I visit on a regular basis, some of which I sign up for the daily emails. Very worthwhile information. You can check it out again at the com. You can even subscribe to the podcast. And if you choose, I would encourage you, think about becoming a supporter of this show. You can do so by becoming a patron or becoming a monthly donor. Again, there's a link provided in today's show notes. Well, the line between informing and terrifying people gets kind of blurry sometimes, depending on the subject that's being discussed. I think climate change is one of those topics where that line blurs very, very quickly. Saw a recent essay from Paul Rosenberg, where he shared a couple of personal experiences with climate change events that perfectly highlight why we should maintain a healthy skepticism of impressive people making breathless pronouncements. Here's what he shares. He says, I haven't written about this in seven years, so he says, I think it's time to repost about two significant experiences I had. With long-range weather forecasts being used to terrify people, I think these stories have some value. He says, in 1999, my friend Henry Lamb mentioned he'd been attending UN meetings. And Paul Rosenberg says, I thought it sounded intriguing and asked for details. After all, reading about an organization is one thing. Actually attending its meetings is another And he says, because I was so enthused, Henry offered to get me into the Kyoto Accord meetings in Bonn, Germany. The official name was COP5. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, I had preconceptions about the UN, of course, but I was looking forward to seeing the real thing in person. Only then would I know if my guesses had been correct. So I made my plans. He says, when I arrived at the specified place and time, I found a magnificent hotel surrounded by hundreds of soldiers and policemen. Everything was absolutely first class. In fact, he says, to this day, I don't think I've seen its equal in terms of high-end, well-run meetings. Everything was pristine. Every need had been considered and addressed in advance. He says, there were several days of meetings scheduled, some in smaller meeting rooms, others in the big auditorium, complete with language-specific headphones and a bank of professional translators. Again, absolutely first class. On the second floor of the facility was a huge computer room. There must have been 50 terminals available. And the connections were excellent, at least for 1999, and there were always open machines. Now, this was a courtesy, not only for the participants, but especially for the press. The attendees, as you might expect, were all well-dressed and all appeared to be feeling special about intending such impressive, elite meetings. He says, I, on the other hand, had a bit of a Groucho Marx moment. I can't believe they let me into this place. Once he started circulating, however, he said it became clear that first class extended no further than the physical layer. The presenters dressed well and tried to use impressive words. Their PowerPoint slides were perfect. But he says the actual content was less than pedestrian. He says, I heard one speech in the impressive headphone amphitheater where the speaker said that vast areas of her her home country would be entirely underwater in 10 years which would have been 2009, and that every soul living there would be dead. As evidence, she referred to impressive names and organizations who had said so. And that was the way the whole conference went. He says, I kept thinking there had to be someone there who was competent that perhaps they were having the real meetings in the back room somewhere. But he says, if so, I never found them. And I had what appeared to be free run of the place. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, there's a little test that I run in my mind in cases like this. I ask myself, if I owned a convenience store, would I feel good about having this person manage it for me when I was out of town for a week? And he says, I applied that test to the entire assemblage of impressive-looking people at this event. And he said, there was only one person that passed, and that man was a Dutch journalist, not involved with the UN or any of its myriad non-governmental organizations. So, who were, th- who were these impressive personages? He says, as best as I could tell, nearly every person at this event was someone making a living from global warming. Or, someone's, some official's uh, son or daughter or brother-in-law or cousin. He says, I found that none had any notable substance. They were flying first class, staying at magnificent hotels, eating in the finest restaurants, and, as he later learned, hiring the best prostitutes and snorting the best drugs. And they were doing it all on some government's tab. Now, he says, I was able to get my hands on some of the U.N.'s internal documentation, which, she says, sadly, I've since lost. But it showed that nearly every dollar they had spent on global warming, and it was many, many millions, was spent on meetings. Of course, they used lots of fancy euphemisms for meetings, like plenary sessions. But, he says, there were two primary types of officials present. Those from big states, who were looking for a new bureaucracy to run, and those from small states, looking for a handout. Now, he says, also through his friend Henry's good graces, he says, I was able to attend the Kyoto meetings the next year. That would be COP6 at The Hague. They were more of the same, and he said, they quickly bored me. But if you remember the famous news footage of this event, the U.S. entourage walking out in protest of something, he says, I was on the other side of the room watching. That was as exciting as it got. The one thing I was able to do at this set of meetings was to go from booth to booth tracing footnotes. He says, what I found at these conferences was that everyone in their very impressive literature was referring to someone else. And so with them all present, I traced back the references. And what I found was that the science, so-called, of one group referred to the science of another, and then another, and still another, who referred back to the first. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, I made no effort to go back a third time. Two sham events in a row were enough for me. So he says, the real impression of these shows was this. If tomorrow new research emerged, proving beyond any shadow of a doubt that global warming was false, and if the people had the emotional strength to accept it, the crowd at these shows would not be ashamed. Rather, they'd stand up, look around at each other and say, well, what should we do next? And Paul Rosenberg, so you have my experiences in the belly of the beast. He says, you might want to think of this as breathless pronouncements are made by very impressive personages over the next year or two. He says, I'm sure I will. Now, see, that's not the same thing as just being contrarian. That's not just the same thing as, oh, I'm just disagreeing with everything that this official is saying. That's using your noggin. That's paying attention to what they're saying, trying to connect the dots, and, and realizing so much of it is just for show. I think it's a really good habit to, to always, always ask the question, qui bono? Who benefits from this particular, you know, approach? And if it's politicians, whether they're looking for power or whether they're just looking for a handout, you have your answer. All right, shifting gears. This was kind of a fun one. Um, how do we break the bad habit of turning to the force of the state to solve every problem that arises in our lives? Ken McManigle shared a solid example of how to handle a problem without gangs. And I'd love to see this kind of thinking become the norm. He says an acquaintance recently had a problem with an eBay package. It was one of those UPS shipments that gets handed over to the USPS for final delivery. Now, the UPS tracking number didn't show any problems during shipment, but when it was handed over to the post office in the big city, someone put the new USPS tracking number on the package along with someone else's name and P.O. box number. Does UPS make the new label or does the USPS? He says, seeing as how the label has the USPS tracking number, I doubt UPS prints those, but I don't know. Anyway, his friend knew nothing of this and kept watching for the delivery. Saturday, the tracking said that the package had been delivered the day before, but he says my acquaintance hadn't gotten it. Now, the post office here is closed on Saturdays, but she went and knocked on the door and they answered. She asked for her package and was told there is no package checking the tracking number they showed it had been picked up by someone with a completely different box number and they said they'd look into it on monday but maybe that person would realize the mistake and return the package not being content to let things sit for two days on a package worth over a hundred dollars his friend used the box number given by the post office and an internet search gave her a name and address a further facebook search showed the person had one mutual friend contact was made By the way, that's a lesson about the privacy-killing internet. The person with the package said, yes, she'd picked up a package, but her name was on it, so it was hers. She denied it contained what my acquaintance had ordered, but consciously avoided saying anything incriminating about it. She even supplied a photo of the label with a tracking number, her name, and box number included, and ended by saying, good luck finding your package. Monday, the post office said the package was in the other person's name, so that was the end of it. Now, eBay denied the claim, because they said the tracking number showed it had been delivered. So here's what Kent McManigle did. His friend wanted to turn things over to the police, but he said since the other person's name and box number were on that package, that would probably be pointless, so she gave him the chance to try to handle it. He looked over every document and message back and forth, gave eBay every bit of information available, including the name and address of the person who'd picked up the package saying that they were unknown to the purchaser and refused to return the package, saying that since her name was on it, it was hers. In fact, he offered to send photographic evidence if they'd tell him where to send it. Well, apparently, this made eBay relent, and eventually, they refunded his friend's money. Now, he says, I count this as a double win. My acquaintance got her money back. I found out where a person I probably shouldn't trust lives. He says, I just hope the eBay seller didn't get charged unless the mistake was somehow theirs. But his point is this... Is this how things might work in a free society where calling the cops isn't an option? It seems like it could be.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back.
1: Okay, if you're on blood pressure medication, you may want to make sure that you're, uh, you know, you've got your dosage current. Because I'm about to share a story with you that, uh, that should raise your blood pressure. And it has to do with the FBI seizing heirlooms, coins, and cash from hundreds of safe deposit boxes in Beverly Hills. And then inviting the owners to come forward and identify themselves and their property. Now, this is, look, I, I don't have fond feelings for the FBI. And it goes back to, oh, I don't know, the Branch Davidians. It goes back to, um, you know, the FBI's handling of Ruby Ridge. There's, there's a lot of hinky stuff that's taken place. I watched the FBI, you know, the FBI uh, perpetrate lies and obfuscation in the, in the case of the Bundy family. They're a very politicized law enforcement agency and probably the equivalent of uh, the the Stasi or the uh, KGB, or at least they will be at some point. It's a scary prospect. But the crazy thing here is this seizure of cash and coins and heirlooms from these safe deposit boxes in Beverly Hills. I know it's easy to say, well, you know, screw those rich people. Let's, you know, let them take their stuff. They probably didn't deserve it in the first place. But here's the key. The FBI admits they understand most of that property in question was known to belong to honest citizens. So why would they seize it? Whatever happened to due process? Whatever happened to probable cause? Innocent until proven guilty. See, it's stuff like this that makes me wonder. At what point can we finally concede that St. Augustine was right when he referred to the state as a gang of thieves writ large? This is an article from Reason.com. Eric Boehm is the author. The FBI seized heirlooms, coins, and cash from hundreds of safe deposit boxes in Beverly Hills despite knowing some belonged to honest citizens. He talks about how this uh, this person, Dagny, had discovered that the FBI had seized the contents of her safe deposit box, about $100,000 in gold and silver coins, some family heirlooms like a diamond necklace inherited from her late grandmother, and an engagement ring she'd promised to pass down to her daughter almost by accident is how she found out about it. She'd been asked by a friend to recommend a convenient and secure location for keeping some valuables. So she searched Yelp to find the phone number for U.S. Private Vaults, a Beverly Hills facility where she'd rented a safe deposit box since 2017. And that's when she saw the bad news permanently closed. After a brief moment of panic, some phone calls and several days, Dagny... And her husband, Howard, these are pseudonyms used at their request to maintain privacy during the ongoing legal proceedings, figured out what happened. Back on March 22nd, the FBI had raided U.S. private vaults. Now, the agents were armed with a warrant allowing them to seize property belonging to the company as part of a criminal investigation. And even though the warrant explicitly exempted the safe deposit boxes in the company's vaults, they were taken too. More than 800 safe deposit boxes were seized. Howard tells Reason there was no attempt made by the FBI to contact him, his wife, or their heirs, despite the fact that, correct, or that contact information rather, was taped to the top of their box. Six weeks later, the couple is still waiting for their property to be returned. Now, in interest of full disclosure, he says both individuals are supporters of Reason Foundation, the nonprofit that publishes this website. The FBI and federal prosecutors have, quote, no authority to continue holding the possessions of some 800 bystanders who are not alleged to have been involved in whatever USPV may have done wrong. That's according to Benjamin Gluck, a California attorney representing several of the people caught up in the FBI's raid of U.S. private vaults. Legal efforts to force the FBI to return the items seized during the March 22nd raid have so far been unsuccessful. But at least five lawsuits are pending in federal court. A grand jury, a federal grand jury, indicted U.S. private vaults on counts of conspiracy to distribute drugs, launder money, and avoid mandatory deposit reporting requirements. In legal fire, filings, rather, federal prosecutors have admitted that some of the company's customers were honest citizens, but contend the majority of box holders are criminals who used U.S.P.V.'s anonymity to hide their ill-gotten wealth. Whatever the original motivation for the raid, the FBI's seizure of hundreds of safe deposit boxes held by U.S. private vaults raises serious Fourth and Fifth Amendment issues. In order to have the contents of their boxes returned, federal authorities are asking owners to come forward, identify themselves, and describe their possessions. Some owners may be unwilling to do that. U.S. private vaults allowed anonymous rentals of safe deposit boxes, while others may rightfully object to being subjected to the scrutiny of federal law enforcement when they've done nothing wrong. Robert Fromer, an attorney with the Institute for Justice, a libertarian law firm, said the Constitution does not abide guilt by association. This was written in an op-ed published by the Orange County Register. Fromer says what the government has done here is completely backward. The government cannot search every apartment in a building because the landlord is involved in a crime. After all, when somebody rents an apartment, that apartment is theirs. Indeed, the unsealed warrant authorizing the raid of U.S. private vaults granted the FBI permission to seize the business's computers, money counters, security cameras, and nests of safe deposit boxes. That's the large steel frames that effectively act as bookshelves for the boxes themselves. But importantly, the warrant does not authorize a criminal search or seizure of the contents of the safe deposit boxes, according to a copy of the warrant contained in court filings. The warrant also states that it authorizes the seizure of the nest of the boxes themselves, not their contents. But the FBI's own policies seem to have allowed a roundabout legal rationale for seizing the boxes as well. Agents are required to take into custody any property that could otherwise be stolen or left in a dangerous manner after carrying out a warrant. To put in the context of a simpler situation, if the FBI seized a truck carrying cargo, it would not simply dump the cargo on the side of the road. Instead, there's a specific procedure for law enforcement to follow, which involves identifying and notifying rightful property owners as well as securing the property. In court filings, however, Gluck and other attorneys representing anonymous plaintiffs argue that the seizure of the nests does not appear to be the government's true purpose here. A reasonable person could reasonably could easily conclude, rather, that taking and searching the contents of the boxes was the true purpose of the USPV seizure, not just an unintended but unavoidable byproduct as the government seeks to portray and justify it. So now that the FBI has nearly 1,000 safe deposit boxes in its custody— anyone who comes forward to identify themselves and claim their possessions risks becoming the target of a criminal investigation. The U.S. Attorney's Office for the Central District of California told the Los Angeles Daily Journal, a legal industry publication, last month that each box is being considered on a case-by-case basis, and we will investigate the boxes or claims made on them to determine if the contents are related to criminal activity. Oh, my. Attorneys for the plaintiffs argue that this amounts to an admission that prosecutors intend to use any information gleaned in the claims process in order to conduct criminal investigations. Now, U.S. private vaults had assured its customers that their anonymity would be protected and people could have valid, non-criminal reasons for wanting to keep their identity to the secret. The rights violations are bad enough. But the FBI seems to have had serious procedural shortcomings as well. One 80-year-old woman represented by Gluck, identified in court documents only as Linda R., may have lost a significant portion of her life savings due to what legal filings say are shoddy inventories of the safe deposit box's contents. In a lawsuit filed April 26th, Linda R.'s attorneys argue the FBI failed to account for or return 40 gold coins worth an estimated $75,000 that had been stored in a safe deposit box housed at U.S. private vaults. Department of Justice documentation detailing the contents of Linda's box makes note of miscellaneous coins without any specific amounts or other identification of the coins. Linda's attorneys note that the description could apply to anything from a pair of pennies to a box full of 1933 Double Eagle gold coins, some of the rarest and most valuable coins ever minted. For now, it remains unclear whether the government even possesses an accurate accounting of what was in her safe deposit box when it was seized. So despite the broad claims of criminality from prosecutors, linda has been charged with no crimes, but still may have lost tens of thousands of dollars of her retirement savings anyway. Even if the FBI's raid of U.S. private vaults eventually uncovers criminal activity relating to some of the safe deposit boxes stored there. That hardly seems to justify the potential losses incurred by innocent bystanders like Linda, who kept her retirement savings there because she distrusted the banking system. Gluck tells Reason it was improper that government seized these possessions in the first place. Unconscionable that they are using them as hostages to pressure owners to divulge private information, and outrageous that they apparently treated the possessions so carelessly that they seem to have lost at least some of them. Jeffrey Isaacs, an attorney for another anonymous customer of U.S. private vaults, says the FBI's raid is as illegal a search and seizure as I've ever seen. Now, for Dagny and Howard, the situation seems particularly cruel. They rented the box at U.S. private vaults after having their home burglarized several years ago. They have the key and rental agreement for the box, and Howard notes they paid for the box with a credit card, hardly the thing you'd try to do if you were trying to hide your identity from the feds or engage in criminal conduct. None of that has made a difference so far, because this time, the burglars wore badges. You can draw whatever lessons you want to, but that certainly doesn't pass the sniff test.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show.